Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And like I said, we're out of Toronto, CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our beloved radio syndicate partners on some sort of excellent community radio station around Canada or on a podcast platform. Lauren Latour is away this week, but uh, I am David Hostetter, and we also have... Stefan Hostetter. That's correct. And we have environmental news, various intricate climate stories. And then Stefan is going to speak about climate action in Toronto, specifically. Uh, Well, no, it's about four different climate actions happening across the country. Across the country. And then Stefan is going to speak with Oscar Perry Abello, uh, who is a solutions journalist, and he is, the, he is a senior economics correspondent for nextcity.org. And they're going to talk about how the banking sector can and must support climate action. So, for some news headlines. Many cities have been swallowed by smoke that has turned the sun into a dim red bulb as wildfires continue to rage all over North America. With hundreds of fires burning in northwestern Ontario, the Deer Lake, Poplar Hill, and Pekangakum First Nations have been evacuating their homes. The Anishinaabe-Aski Nation, which represents 49 First Nations in Ontario, wants the province to declare an emergency in order to bring more resources in to help people evacuate. Many people in British Columbia want their province to declare an emergency as well. Fires are burning so uniformly across America that firefighters cannot fly around helping out in different places like they did last year. The bootleg fire in Oregon is so huge that it's creating its own lightning storms. It was the hottest June ever for the continent this year, the second hottest June for Europe, and the fourth hottest June for the globe. 93% of the western U.S. is in drought. The heat could end up killing almost all the young salmon in the Sacramento River in California. The heat is also killing more people who are seeking refuge in the United States by going through Arizona. An intense heat wave also hit Scandinavia earlier this month, and there's recently been deadly violence in Iran from the water crisis in the province of Khuzestan. There has been terrible flooding in Eastern Europe, killing almost 200 people with 1,500 still missing and almost completely destroying a medieval town in Germany. New research published in Geophysical Research Letters suggests that such slow-moving storms could become 14 times more frequent by 2100 due to our burning of fossil fuels. Heavy rainfall has also recently caused deadly flooding in China and India. Detroit went through its second 500-year flood in seven years at the end of June. 
Meanwhile, NASA has completed a study that predicts an 18.6-year cycle of moon wobbling will increase high tides and by the mid-2030s greatly exacerbate sea-level-related flooding in coastal cities. Permafrost thawing in Alaska is undermining the supports that are holding up a section of the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline. Authorities have decided to install a cooling system to keep the permafrost frozen in the area around the pipeline. They are fighting the rising heat in order to keep shipping the substance that is causing the rising heat. HuffPo is reporting the six Democrat senators that Exxon just accidentally admitted to heavily lobbying were given $333,000 over the past 10 years by groups connected to Exxon. The senators are Mark Kelly, Maggie Hassan, Joe Manchin, Chris Coons, Kirsten Cinema, and John Tester. Besides Exxon, it turns out that a great many American corporations are actively lobbying against the very emissions targets they have publicly committed to. A study published in May in Science Direct, meanwhile, shows that companies that commit major environmental crimes are not really punished by the market, and their credit ratings are not generally affected either. The revelator quotes Bert Schultens, who co-authored the study, as saying, quote, There is a narrative in the financial markets that the financial markets on their own are very well capable of disciplining erring, fraudulent, or stupid CEOs. But the financial community seems unable to discipline the economic agents behind the controversies. Here in Canada, the province of Quebec has rejected an LNG project that was campaigned against for years. Also in Quebec, Ganawake Mohawks put up a protest camp on the 1st of July to prevent a housing development near Montreal. APTN quotes spokeswoman Stay Deer as saying, quote, These lands are still being taken from us. This is still happening today. It hasn't changed. We couldn't wait until something was built there. In BC, activists are continuing to block roads to prevent old-growth logging. And in Manitoba, the progressive conservative premier Brian Pallister who recently lost his Indigenous Affairs Minister because she couldn't do her job after he defended our genocidal residential schools, has hired a replacement minister for a special position specifically about reconciliation. And in his first speech to the press, the new minister also defended our genocidal residential schools. The new minister said several times that the European settlers, this is the Minister for Recons Indigenous Reconciliation, he said several times that the European settlers who came here came to build a better Manitoba, bizarrely implying that the province of Manitoba existed before European settlers arrived. That project in Quebec with a GNL Quebec project was something that we referenced in a that was referenced previously in the discussion with Robin Tress about the issues that LNG is having sort of across Canada and in the world right now and so this is yet another example of the ways in which LNG is really not a bridge fuel at all 
let alone an answer to our our climate problems. And to circle back to some of the stories earlier that you referenced in regards to the unbelievable wildfires that we're experiencing, you know, even here in Toronto, the sun is being blotted out by the smoke coming from the northern fires in northern Ontario every day, it seems. You know, in New York City, they're getting fires, they're getting smoke from fires from California, the monsoons, and these all these things are still going on, including from the conversation we had even now three, four weeks ago about the ways in which people get involved in the climate movement. And in that conversation, we had some simple questions and ideas as to how one might take the first step in. And as a bit of a follow-up on that, I want to spend a short period of time here looking into a few of the ways that action is currently happening and the influence and ideas behind each one and, and where they're at. So... Before I get into it, I want to note that each of these campaigns is different, it's unique, has different goals and tactics, but are all part of the same fight. And so, first, an update on the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which we discussed about a month or two, or two ago with Sebla Samuel, which, which, which led by valiant efforts from many Toronto groups, including Climate Fast, Fridays for Future, Seniors for Climate Action, and Mobilize TO, actually passed City Council last week. And ultimately, the quite progressive call to treat fossil fuels like we did nuclear weapons passed council by a 22 to 2 margin. And, you know, the strategy here is to use the momentum generated by cities calling for this to begin to pressure on national governments as the task of implementing the asks of the treaty would fall squarely on the fed federal government's shoulders. So this is more about movement building and growing the consensus to pressure upwards rather than explicitly any expecting anything from these councillors themselves. And the second campaign, though, uh, is quite the opposite. Led by the Toronto Environmental Alliance, the city also voted last week to approve consultations on a, on a potential stormwater surcharge. The idea had been shelved by Toronto's Mayor John Tory in 2017, but has since rece has received renewed interest as both Toronto and cities around the world have struggled to adapt to intense rainfall. You know, the worst versions of this we've seen referenced earlier in your news segment. And the ask here was simply to begin the process once again to examine creating a special charge to owners of property which allow significant amounts of water to run off them and overwhelm our sewers, leading to basements and underpass flooding that has caused significant property damage and, in some instances, trapping individuals in their cars or elevators during intense rainfalls over the past few years. And what's interesting here, to me, is the fact that in terms of our usual understandings of sort of left-right politics dynamics, this ask is far more centrist than the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. You know, like, if you agree that climate change is such a significant issue that we should be treating fossil fuels like nuclear weapons, it should be a no-brainer that we need to address the consequences of increased severe weather with intentional and adaptive responses. And yet, this initiative only passed 1311, with the mayor voting against it. And this wasn't even to implement the charge itself, but only to consult on it. And this is because often in local politics have very different power structures, which is why creating the personal relationships with your local representatives can be so effective. You know, it's fantastic that this passed, but it, the fact that it's entirely probable that last week could have sent the message saying, we think the federal government should treat this like the emergency that it is, but heaven forbid you ask anything from our constituents, even if our constituents are, are downtown parking lots, leaves a lot to be questioned. So the second thing 
the stormwater surcharge. Yeah. That was a motion that narrowly passed? Yeah, only 1311. In the Toronto City Council? Yeah. And that is to make the owners of parking lots make their cement more porous? It's to begin the consultation to consider what a stormwater surcharge could look like. It's not just parking lots. It would be owners of property. But the idea would be the more water runoff your property creates, there's some sort of extra charge levied to you that would then go to support stormwater protections. Hmm. And so, you know, parking lots end up being one of the biggest ones because they're so often not porous and so often, you know, and have so much runoff compared to some other places. But it would be, it's, it's theoretically a wider thing. But again, that's, it's just a consultation. It's not even diving into the bigger things. Yeah, and that narrowly passed. Yeah. But but city council almost unanimously agreed that fossil fuels are akin to nuclear weapons. Or that they should be treated in a similar fashion, yes. And there's, that, to me, is, in, is something we should pay attention to. But shifting beyond Toronto uh, to focus more broadly, 350.org's On Fire campaign, which we talked about last week, has announced its two major demands – immediate moratorium on new fossil fuel projects under construction, including TMX, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and just transition legislation to support impacted workers and communities, especially indigenous and remote communities, as we shift to 100% renewables. The federal liberals have officially announced their consultations on a just transition legislation. However, how useful this consultation process will be, given the immense likelihood that an election will be called well before any actual legislation is tabled, let alone passed, means that this must be an election issue, else it may not return once the election is over. And 350 has seven has a seven-step process for getting involved, beginning with re- beginning with registering your event at 350.org/onfire, recruiting your team, even if it's just a couple of friends, and building on that to make as big of a splash as you can. You know, part of the goal here is to ensure that as many MPs who are running, and especially the ruling liberals understand that nothing short of a fulsome plan to ensure that all workers are able to transition out of fossil fuel jobs will be acceptable. As we saw in some of the reporting we did last week, Iron Earth's reporting has shown that this is quite, that this is both possible and popular from and with fossil fuel workers even themselves. But so far, the liberals, while speaking of this plan, have also stated that they have no intention of giving up on oil, which is a simply unacceptable from a climate perspective. And we'll talk more about the need for just transition and what it looks like on next week's show. And finally, a quick check-in on the multitude of efforts on the banking campaigns. Whether it's Banking for a Better Future or Climate Pledge's Bank Switch or the multi-organizational campaign on the banks are burning us, or Lead Now and Lash RBC, hashtag Lash RBC's efforts to pressure Royal Bank, the number of directions that our banking sector in Canada is feeling the heat are innumerable. Canada's five big banks are some of the biggest supporters of fossil fuel projects around the world, and Canadians have simply had enough. All of these campaigns remain in the early stages, so expect to see them ramp up, especially since the growing sense, especially since despite the growing sense of climate unease, the banking sector here in Canada remains quite quite popular, and therefore are able to continue to support these projects without really impacting their brand. And the efforts we see now are aiming to chip away at that and hold them accountable. It's also important to note that banking does not have to be this way. 
has will hear in the second half of this program, just after the next music break, there are a whole host of ways the banking sector could be changed to better serve people and the planet. But it will take real work from all of us to pressure both the banks themselves and the government to expect this change of them. All four of these actions are important and valuable, and all four have different expectations of both our elected officials and the participants, and different tactics move them forward. And so if you're, if you're sitting at home and one of these angles interests you, reach out or find a local group that's working on something similar and dive in. We all can't do everything, but each of us can do something. And now we're going to take a break and return with Stefan's interview with Oscar Perry Abello, a solutions journalist, senior economics correspondent for nextcity.org about how the banking sector can and must change, change.
Thank you. That was a song called And This Is What We Call Progress by the excellent band The Besnard Lakes. Thank you very much, The Besnard Lakes. And now back to the Green Majority. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found. Links to everything are located at greenmajority.ca. And I am very excited to be joined by Oscar Perry Abello for the senior economics correspondent for nextcity.org to continue our ongoing effort to include more solutions journalism into this conversation. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Oscar. Thanks, Stefan. It's great to be with you. So we got connected uh, through the Solutions Journalism Network, which is working with nextcity.org to mm-hmm. examine a whole bunch of different solutions and even a significant amount of work on the banking industry in particular. Up here in Canada, I'm not sure if it's, it's probably doesn't get filtered down too much in the States where you're from, but Mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of pressure right now going towards the major banks here in Canada to clean up their act. It's amazing the galvanization of efforts towards the big five Canadian banks to really stop funding fossil fuels, changing their lending habits and changing themselves to respond to this crisis that we're in. And you have done a whole bunch of reporting on a bunch of different ways that the banking sector can better serve people and the planet. And so I'm yes. curious if you could tell us what your biggest takeaways are from this reporting. Sure. Stefan, and again, it's great to be with you and I'm really honored to be invited to the Green Majority. So takeaways, I'm going to talk about three of them. Number one, people, power, and politics have shaped the banking system more than most of us remember. Now, let me also say first, I live in New York City. Next City is based in Philadelphia. And all of my coverage and most of Next City's coverage is about the United States. So I'm talking mostly from the perspective of someone who's reported on the banking system in the U.S., which has plenty of problems, um, but also plenty of inspiring and interesting stories that I'm lucky enough to get to cover at Next City. And this first takeaway is is one of them. So people have the power to shape the banking system more than we know. know. Over time, in the U.S., there's been a lot of different changes to banking policy, and those feed into the second takeaway, which is radical change is possible in the banking system. And I usually illustrate that with one fact about the U.S. banking system. From 1933 until the mid-1980s, there were 14,000 banks in the U.S., most of them very small, and most of deposits in the United States were in very small banks, under $300 million in assets. Fast forward till today, there were a bunch of policy changes in the 1980s and the 90s. And today we have less than 5,000 banks in the US. And that's not the kind of radical change I think most of your listeners are looking for, but just to say, it's possible. We went from in one lifetime, 14,000 banks to less than 5,000 banks. We went from a banking industry that was dominated by small community or regional banks to one that is today dominated by big banks. Today, the top 20 largest banks alone have almost half of all deposits in the U.S. Again, not the radical change I think folks are looking for necessarily, but it is possible within the span of one lifetime. The third takeaway is banking and banks are not sufficient to fix everything that is wrong with the economy 
or the world or the planet. Don't expect and don't depend on banks to do everything that we, the U.S. or Canada or the planet need in order to survive as a species and to have a planet where you know humanity continues to exist in harmony or at least can finally exist in harmony with nature. Banks aren't sufficient, but I would say it's hard to imagine banks not being part of the solution. And, and there's one reason why. In the U.S., and also I know I'm not too familiar with the Canadian banking system, but I know the legal structures and precedents are very similar, and they all go back to the Bank of England anyway. So going back to the Bank of England, here's the powerful thing, the unique thing about banks that we don't often talk about. Banks create most of the money, 80 to 95% of the money that exists in the world. It's created when banks make loans. That's, that's what a banking charter is. It's, the, it's a license to create money on behalf of whatever government is granting that charter. The United States government, the government of Canada, the bank government of England, or I guess the, the queen, I guess technically, is granting that charter. The banks create most of the money when they create loans, and then the money gets exchanged. When you think about the fact that in the U.S. there's $18 trillion circulating in the economy right now, 98% of that isn't printed anywhere. It just exists in the accounting entries, the ledger entries of banks all across the country. Again, this is all to say that banks have this very unique power. They have this very unique place in our society and our economic systems. So it's hard to imagine solving a challenge as big as climate change or addressing something as big as mitigating environmental injustice or eliminating environmental injustice. It's hard to imagine addressing those things let alone affordable housing challenges, let, a, let alone small business access to capital challenges, racial disparities in access to capital that we have in the U.S. It's hard to imagine addressing those things without the power to create money being behind you. But definitely don't expect banks by themselves and money by itself to be the thing that solves everything. That requires a lot. It just goes back to the first two takeaways. Two, radical change is possible in the banking system. And one, yes, people, voters, policymakers have more power to shape the banking system than we often remember. Some of the reporting that you did was looking at specific banks that were trying to do things differently, that sort of could pave the way yeah. and show the example of, of the power there. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a story of one of these banks that's trying to do things in a way that, you know, puts people in planet first. Yeah. So I recently did a story about a bank that ironically it merged and no longer exists in name, but it did exist for about a decade. It was called New Resource Bank. And it was a bank whose founders wanted to create access to bank loans for green businesses or to help businesses become more green. I was thinking about maybe a big warehouse company or a company in my big warehouse is deciding, oh, we want to put solar panels on the top of all of our warehouses. Like, why not? And needing a bank loan to get that. And back in 2003, 2004, five, banks weren't really doing that. And it's not that long ago. But uh, the founders of this bank realized that you needed more than just venture capital or startup capital for green businesses. You needed credit. You needed the money-creating power of banks to get behind these things. So New Resource Bank was... Founded in San Francisco, the founders came mostly out of the banking industry, and but they were in California, they're in the Bay Area, and they saw the opportunity to, yeah, provide credit to businesses who are either in green or environmental sustainability sectors, 
or were regular businesses who wanted to make themselves more green. Okay, so they saw that opportunity, but no banks, no existing banks wanted to do it. And so they went to the federal regulators. You have to have a business plan when you apply for a bank charter and you have to have a founding team, a board of directors or a founding CEO that has banking experience that'll make banking regulators feel comfortable with the fact that they're giving you a, a license to create money. They got that team together and they put the business plan together. They had a list of 200 businesses to, with profiling each of them saying, these are the kinds of businesses we think we want to serve. And it took about a year of back and forth with the regulators. And that's not out of the ordinary. Regulators want to be very careful with who they're granting a bank charter to. And so they, they're also investigating, looking into the backgrounds of all your, your founding members. Maybe they're talking to some of those businesses that you mentioned to ask them, you know, what it's been like so far. After a year, they got the bank charter and they opened in 2006. And it took a couple of years, and this is where the story gets into what it was like for them to start up. And it wasn't it wasn't all hunky dory at first. It was hard to get the trust of a lot of these businesses. Some of these companies who were in environmental sustainability in, back in 2003 or four and five, but they didn't trust banks for the most part. You know, maybe they were in credit unions, but credit unions have a lot of limitations on what they can do in this in the United States when it comes to small business lending. So they had trouble getting loans from from their from their credit unions too. But it took a while and the bank actually almost failed. It got caught up in in the same financial crisis that all banks got caught up in in 2008 and 2009. And so the bank almost failed and they brought in a CEO around three previous banks. His name is Vince Siciliano. And he's one of the main characters in the story because he's, he comes in and he, he's trying to figure out with his colleagues, he's not by himself. He's got a board of directors and he's got uh, other colleagues that he's bringing in and they're all figuring out how are we going to run a bank that specializes in environmental sustainability lending? Like this is our target market for depositors. It's our target market for lending. How do we do that? And that's really the, the story of the bank. And some of it is getting to know those sectors one of their big early sectors was organic foods and getting to understand what the, how the business models work, how the industry worked, how the industry was structured. But these are things that are necessary for two reasons. One, you want to get to know the potential customers. Two, you got to get to know the business models and the industry so that you can feel comfortable as a bank taking on the risk of lending to those businesses. One of the things I say in the story is, if a bank says a, a certain kind of business or a certain neighborhood is too risky to make loans to, that's usually a white lie at best. Usually, if the bank says it's too risky, it's because the bank hasn't taken the time or doesn't want to take the time to get to know that neighborhood or get to know that industry or that sector. This bank, New Resource Bank, and its loan officers and its staff, they took the time to get to know the organic food sector. They took the time to get to know the solar panel in, uh, installation sector and industry and all the different businesses that are involved in that. They took the time to get to know them, how they work, and it helped them underwrite those loans, approve those loans. And I also say this in the story, it helped them convince the regulators that the, those loans were safe, because that is another real thing behind the banking industry, in, at least in the U.S. Regulators review banks' books every quarter. They come in and look at every loan the bank made that quarter. For business loans, you look at the business loans and say, hey, this business, I don't understand like what the industry is. I don't know where you got these valuations for this collateral or for this loan. I don't understand. And some banks will just give up and say, oh, you know what? We're not going to make those loans anymore. Just, okay, sorry about that. No, this bank said, yeah, 
let us explain to you, Mr. Regulator, how we came to understand that this loan was not as risky as you think it is. And they, they did that for about 10 years. And they're still technically doing that, or at least the loan officers who worked at New Resource Bank, they now work at the bank that New Resource merged with, and they're doing many of those same loans. So in 2018, New Resource Bank merged with Amalgamated Bank, which is based in New York City. So this is a bank from across the country. It's much bigger than New Resource Bank was. But the unique thing about Amalgamated Bank was it's union-owned. So it's part of the labor movement. And the leaders of, of Amalgamated Bank really wanted to get into environmental sustainability lending. And the leaders at New Resource Bank really wanted to have a national reach. And so it made sense for, for them to, to merge one after they talked about it for a while. The CEO at New Resource Bank, it's actually how they got to merge. He wanted to retire in 2018. And once he announced his retirement, that's when Amalgamated actually reached out to New Resource and said, hey, have you thought about, we're thinking about, it might make sense for us to merge. So that's how they ended up merging. And so uh, Amalgamated Bank is today still doing a lot of what New Resource Bank was doing as a bank. Wow. From a more activist perspective, it's fascinating to see the overlap or the coming together of labor and environment, which I see very commonly mm. in the activist spaces over the last 10 years, also oh, wow. expanding into banks, right? There's like <laughs> what the opposite yeah. end of the spectrum, yeah. but still realizing that the combined power of that is truly, it's good news, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so clearly the fact that these are still rare that in the fact that these banks mm-hmm. that are trying to do different things seem still so unique in their in their fashion. I'm curious if you can talk a little, little bit about what kind of barriers that these institutions are facing when they try to break the mold. Like mm-hmm. there's got to be a reason why they're not proliferating like mad because everyone wants this thing. Everyone solve climate change like grants do this. What's holding them back? Yeah, this is a tough question. There's a lot of layers and variables involved. Let me start with the most obvious one. Again, speaking from the U.S. perspective, for many years after the financial crisis, federal regulators were pretty much not approving new bank charters. They just weren't giving them out. There were folks who applied, folks who asked about it, and there are some academics who have written papers or at least have heard from some of their contacts, academics who used to work, who maybe used to work at a federal agents, banking regulator. So for about a decade after the, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, there just weren't any new banks in the U.S. for all intents and purposes. So that's the most obvious barrier. The second barrier is pretty much dovetailing off of that. Uh, it's a very specialized kind of experience and skill set to start a new bank. And if you don't allow any new banks to start for 10 years, the people who used to start new banks all the time, they go off and find something else to do. They're not sitting around waiting for regulators to suddenly start opening the floodgates again. And so the folks who know how to start those new banks, they're doing other things now. Or, or, or they retire. Like I mentioned, like this Vince Siciliano, the longtime CEO of New Resource Bank, he's just he's retired and he's living in San Diego and he's fixing up his house. And I don't know what else he's doing down there, but he's, he's not. I asked him, he's not interested in coming back to start another bank. But he is, on the other hand, formally or informally advising other folks now on starting new banks. So only in the past couple of years now have you started different groups of people coming together to think about or explore the possibility of starting up uh, new banks. Some of them are environmentally minded. There's one in Chicago that'll be one of the first all women founded and all women led banks ever in the US. So there's a group in Chicago who are doing that now. What other barriers do they face to starting banks? Most folks who used to start banks a lot, they'll tell you 
it costs a lot more now to start a bank than it used to. You might've been able to start a bank with five, six, seven, eight million, 10 or 20 years ago, five, six, seven or $8 million. Today, most folks will say 20 million maybe can get you to start a bank, maybe 25 million. And there's a couple of different reasons why that number is so high. And we can talk more about it, but I'll just summarize quickly. The reason the startup costs are high is the regulatory requirements. You do need a lot of cushion to start up the bank initially, and it's startup. you need a long runway. You need, you need to be able to pay staff while the bank is losing money in, in its initial days. So those costs are, are up. The regulators want to see that you have that money in hand, ready to go before they give you a bank charter and you can actually start doing business. So the number is higher. Two, the investors who used to do that, like there used to be investors who would invest in new banks as it's just a thing that they would do. So again, they also dried up over the past 10 years. There, there were just no new banks for 10 years. So the investors went off to do something else and they're coming back. Even for the ones who want to come back, they're like, oh, it used to take 8 million to start a bank. Now you need 20 million? I'm sorry, I, I can't do that for you. So that's a problem now for starting up new banks. I could go on, but those are some of the big ones. Yeah, and I think needing $20 million is a pretty big barrier, I think, to most things, including yeah. as a New Yorker, Toronto has a similar real estate market, but $20 million mm -hmm. can start you a bank or maybe it buys you a one-bedroom condo. We can yeah. <laughs> commiserate. So there's a term called the green bank, which I want to pivot to. Because okay. it is, it's not the same thing. The, the sort of banks mm -hmm. we're talking about in the previous are, mm -hmm. while banks, and this word also has bank in it, the concept of when people talk about a green bank in this context is not yes. the same at all. But they are gaining a lot of traction in terms of addressing the kind of problems that you address that these, some of these smaller banks were trying to match with, which was like, how mm -hmm. do you fund big infrastructure projects on green projects? Yeah. And so these green banks have been popping up around the world as a way to try to tackle this problem that people are seeing in a more direct way than hoping that other banks will show up and they might take fill this void. It's a little more intentional, but also they're different. So can you tell us a little bit about A, what green banks are, and then B, how they work and what makes them different? Yeah, I'll start with the, the last bit there. So what makes them different? The banks we've been talking about so far, these are chartered depository institutions. Anyone can go there, open up a bank account, put their deposits in, you can ask for a loan. The bank can give you a loan and thereby create new money. Those are depository institutions. I would include credit unions in that circle of the, uh, or under that category or under that umbrella. Again, you go open an account, you can put deposits in, you can apply for a loan. So that's a bank. And there are banks that do green things. Like I mentioned, New Resource Bank or Amalgamated Bank now. Now, small banks and big banks, a lot of banks are doing more, you know, solar panel installation loans. Now that's more of a, an established thing. But what is a green bank? So green bank in quotation marks, these started popping up also in the last 10 or 15 years. And they're a bank in the sense that they're a financial institution, but they're generally not taking, these are not deposit taking institutions. These are not money creating institutions, but they do work closely with regular banks or credit unions or including credit unions. What is a green bank and how they work? So in the most basic terms, a green bank is a pile of money that gets used to convince regular banks to make certain kinds of loans that advance various green technologies or green industries or green consumption, it's solar, solar energy consumption, for instance. Again, from the US perspective, one of the early challenges for solar installation loans was 
again, banks would say it's too risky because the regulators are like, it's too risky. We don't know if people will actually pay back the money. We don't know if these solar panels are actually as efficient as everyone says they are or whatever, make up whatever reason you've heard. I'm sure a bank has, has made it up to say, I can't, we can't do these loans because they're too risky. So in the US, what you started to see are, there's the Connecticut Green Bank or the, the Michigan, it's a, the Michigan Green Bank. They would say, okay, if you make these loans to help people buy solar panels and put them on the top of their homes, we'll guarantee them. We'll, we're a pile of money and we'll, we will be the collateral for you, the bank, to make these loans. So if, they, if the borrowers can't pay them back for whatever reason, we'll pay it back. This would be a way to make the banks feel comfortable. It would be a way to make the banking regulators feel comfortable. And so banks and credit unions would sign up and say, okay, we'll work with the Green Bank. We'll make these loans. We'll use your this pile of money as collateral. And yeah, that's, it. that's basically what's happened in Connecticut and Michigan. In New York, the New York Green Bank has a little bit of a different model. So New York Green Bank has been around for a couple of years now. They do some of the work I just talked about. They're called loan guarantees, right? There's, they're guaranteeing that banks make, that make certain loans won't lose money. The New York Green Bank will do some of that, but the New York Green Bank will also just provide upfront capital to solar or wind energy generation projects, putting up windmills or putting up a solar panel installation. They'll just put up the money upfront and then... Once those projects are generating energy and, and selling energy to the various utilities around the state, once those projects are selling energy, then those projects can get a regular bank loan based on the revenue that they're bringing in. And so once they get the regular bank loan, they repay the New York Green Bank. And then the New York Green Bank recycles that capital into other projects. So that's the way the New York Green Bank is working. The Connecticut Green Bank is starting to do some of those things. DC started up very recently. And so they're also looking into building out their model in DC. But they're following the Connecticut Green Bank, New York and Michigan Green Banks as a as a guide. Those are the three sort of more established green banks in the U.S. And there are others around around the world, actually, not just around the U.S., but there are, there are more and more around the world. Yeah, basically a green bank is a, think of it as a fund or just a pile of money that gets used as collateral or upfront capital to convince or move banks to make other loans. Re- remember that banks are creating new money. And so you want to get that money creation power into environmental sustainability and other things. And so green banks are a way to do that. And it's very efficient. I think I think it was the Michigan Green Bank. I, I did a story about the, the three established green banks. I think it was the Michigan Green Bank that said, we've insured like something like $50 million of solar panel installation loans, but we've only paid out like $800,000 in loan losses. So you can enable a lot of lending, a lot of money creation from regular banks with just a small bit of money at a green bank. I'm glad you mentioned that last point because that stuck out to me of the fact that if you're not paying things back, then you're winning. You're yeah. able to, if you're not pay, yeah. paying things back, then you're able to use that mm-hmm. money again and again and again and again. And that really yeah. obviously is a huge advantage. Yeah. So all of these stories are a part of a, a larger series that you've been working on called Financing Our Green Future, which is a partnership mm-hmm. with the Solutions Journalism Network, as I mentioned earlier. And I'm interested, because you've been you know, following these stories so diligently over the past few years, where you see the series going next, but also 
what you actually would suggest our listeners pay attention to in the future. What are the words or ideas that you think that people should really pay attention to in terms of unlocking the next big step or making some real progress towards finding a way to make the sector work in a way that's better for people and the planet? In terms of the series, Financing Our Green Future, which we're doing with Solutions Journalism Network, we're looking into a couple different ways that financing green things is or, or could be changing. One thing is for some challenges like generating energy or stormwater retention, making sure that the water actually goes into the ground instead of getting funneled into rivers and lakes and, and causing all kinds of pollution issues with fish dying and plants getting killed off, that stormwater retention. There's problems, there's established things, and, and the challenge is how do you get money behind new ideas or harder ideas to, to address those challenges? Also, how do you make sure we're not missing the communities we usually miss with those solutions? In the U.S., for instance, with solar panel installation, it's something, we, if we didn't think about it, we would easily have solar panels on top of every McMansion in the country. Every billionaire, every millionaire would have solar panels on their homes. And meanwhile, everyone else is just left out hanging the dry. We're not, we're not getting any of those benefits. The Connecticut Green Bank, for instance, and Michigan Green Banks have been putting extra thought now into how do we make sure that we're reaching households who, who not only should they have it as a right, but it really helps them more. Helping a lower income household save $30, $50, $100 on their energy bill every month means a lot more to that household. That might be a big chunk of someone's rent. So spreading out the solutions that exist to more places, getting money to new ideas for existing problems, pushing out or making sure that we're including lower income, historically marginalized communities, Black communities, Latino communities, Indigenous communities in the benefits of, the, of these new industries. Two weeks ago, I was in Denver and I, I was at the headquarters with, of the Native American Bank. It's the only nationwide served tribal-owned bank. It's owned by 30 tribes across the country are all shareholders at this bank based in Denver. I was talking with their chief lending officer about getting more capital to build wind generation projects on reservation land. Some reservations on tribes, tribal councils, tribal entities, tribal governments are interested in it. It's not for everyone. There's pros and cons to, to all these projects. But yeah, you know what? Native American tribes, given that everything that this country has done to them throughout their history, to, have, to give them the economic self-determination to decide, you know what? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to benefit from this wind industry. You know, there's going to be billions of dollars poured into it. There's going to be billions of dollars made off of this industry. It's their, if they want to, it's their right to have a piece. And that's, that's another version of like getting the benefits out there. So it's not just the consumption benefits, it's the production benefits. You think about like, where should we have solar panel installations in this country? Where does it make sense to have it? I don't know, maybe in some desert lands. Who owns a lot of desert land? I think Navajo Nation is one of the largest land-owning entities or groups in the country. Again, you don't want to blanket the whole carpet with solar panels. There's a limit to it. And I don't know. I think I trust Navajo Nation to make that more than I trust J.P. Morgan Chase to make that decision about how much solar panels to put out there. That's part of where this series could be going next, the partnership we're doing with Next City and Solutions Journalism Network. Awesome. That sounds fascinating, uh, especially given the ongoing, especially in here in Canada, there's a deep conversation that is required and is still at fits and starts the beginning of what a nation-to-nation -nation relationship looks like with Indigenous populations here in Canada. 
and what reconciliation looks like. And part of that has to be here, the call is for land back, but that also means resources back. And these types of things that they've been held out of, I think has to be a significant part of that work. Yeah. And you bring up a good point here, and I just want to elaborate on what you're just saying. I would distinguish between giving land back or giving money, giving land back or giving money back to Native communities or Black communities for historic wrongs. That's something that is worth doing for different reasons and that can and should be done. At the same time, what we're really talking about today is not that. It's not the giving back of money or land. It's taking something, the money creation power of banking, that historically only benefited a certain group of people of a certain of a certain race, mostly of one gender, taking that money creation power that's typically reserved just for that one single homogenous group of people and, and spreading it out over those who have historically been left out or denied that power. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Black-owned banks or Native-owned banks, or women-owned banks, or Latino-owned banks. It's not about correcting all the historical wrongs. It's about equal access to money creation power. And that, that's really what, what most of what I write about at Next City. Right. That makes sense. I, that, I think that is a great place to end because I think that piece about the importance of, I think people don't understand how banks work. Like it's, it does feel like I'll go back to the very beginning of your point that banks are just creating wealth and giving it out. And then they make money off the money that they are allowed to print. And that right. fact alone is just saying that people who have the ability and are allowed to print money will get richer. And so moving who gets richer in that equation is very important if we're talking about actually trying to, to change the world because, yeah, else we get stuck in sort of the wealth circle that, that you highlighted there. And that mm. I think that underlying fact goes beyond people's understandings of banks a lot of time. That really it is just people get permission to print money, which they then loan, yeah. and then you pay an interest to get access to that money. And so there are yeah. some people who are just allowed to literally print money. Like people say money doesn't grow on trees in one particular institution. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't grow on trees, but it does grow on paper. Yeah. It grows in ledger entries. It does. It, it grows. It grows. On trees. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely grows. Yeah. Thank you so much. I do want to give Chodes folks to find out how they can follow your work and stay up to date mm -hmm. on, on these protests. And then if you have one last thought to be left with our listeners, by all means, take that opportunity as well. Yeah, you can go to nextcity.org and we have a number of newsletter options for folks. You can get a newsletter that is basically comes from me every Tuesday. It's called The Bottom Line. And you can also get a newsletter with a weekly or a daily newsletter with all of Next City's reporting. And we don't just write about banks. We also write about environmental justice issues, education, public transportation, green space. We cover cities from the lens of racial, social, and environmental justice. So that, that's what Next City is. It's mostly in the U.S. focused, for better or worse. So sorry for our Canadian audience, but great to be with you today. You can follow Next City at NextCityOrg on Twitter or Instagram. You can also follow me specifically at OscarThinks on Twitter, also on Instagram, I'm OscarThinks. And that's how you can stay up to date with, with the work. And my final thought or parting thought for the audience is everyone who's in power now and who holds most of the power now, they did not invent banking, money, or credit. They've co-opted it. They've taken it and shaped how those things work in the world to their advantage. 
but they didn't invent any of these of those things. And we need to remember that and keep that in mind when we're fighting for all these other causes that we can also fight to put banking money to the service of things other than the status quo. Amazing. Thank you so much, Oscar Perry Abello, the Senior Economics Correspondent for nextcity.org. Thank you so much for joining us and keep up the great work. Thanks, Stephanie. Great Cheers. to be with you.